This is the Researcher's Code podcast. My name is Victoria Carr and I interview pioneering women who are pushing the boundaries of technology and scientific research, from computational social science to robotics. I ask what their research is about, how they got into tech, and what their advice would be to women and minorities wanting to work in tech. I hope you enjoy listening. Today, I'm interviewing Dr. Chinooki Serensina. Chinooki is a data science researcher at the Alan Turing Institute in London, and is also working commercially as a data scientist for companies such as Channel 4 and Popser. She specializes in using big online datasets and deep learning to understand how the aesthetics of the environment affects human well-being. Welcome, Chinooki. So could you just tell us a bit about yourself and your research? Um, sure. Well, I'll start with my research because there's probably quite a lot of different things I can tell you about myself. Um, so what, what really got me interested in my research is that, um, well, I love going to beautiful places and I often notice that you kind of have this sense of kind of this relief or this sense of well-being. And I was wondering whether I actually can quantify the connection between beautiful places and our well-being. And, but normally you can imagine that to actually quantify beauty isn't an easy thing. So we normally have research on things like green space or natural areas, because that's actually a lot more easier to kind of quantify. Um, but say you want to do a study on um, beauty, then you might want to say conduct a survey. So you could do it in a neighborhood that's feasible, but say you want to do it in a city, well, that's starting to get more timely and um, costly. And if you want to do a whole country, you know, forget about it. That's not absolutely not impossible. Um, so I was really excited when I came across this website called Scenic or Not, and it's this like very simple online game, and it's kind of addictive. You just kind of rate these images between one and ten. But what's happening in the background is that each image represents a square kilometer of Great Britain, and so there's about around two hundred thousand images rated about one point five million times, and it's a really nice map now of where all the scenic places are all around the country. So um, well, that was kind of the main data set I started to use to then connect that with other kind of geospatial data to try to, on well-being, to try to understand the connection between beautiful places and, um, and how we feel. And so what kind of other geographical data did you link this score method to? Um, so lots of different things. So I've, I've linked it to um, data from the census. And there's a question where people are asked about how do you feel about your health? And they'll reply, you know, very good or not good. And I've, I've basically um, linked those two together. Um, I've also linked it with mobile phone data, a, a really cool app called Mappiness that was developed by George McCarran at LSE. And you get pinged two times a day and you answer how happy you are as you're going around your everyday life, because that's quite a nice measure of everyday happiness. And I've also linked that um, and looked at um, a study called Understanding Society, and that's an annual survey of around 40,000 households. And there's lots of different questions there. So it could be about life satisfaction or mental distress. So I've been, uh, and also reported health again. So I've been looking into that. Well. Right. So um, one of the things that's really interesting is before you started working in data science, you worked in quite a different area. Um, yeah. Could you just tell me more about your background? Um, yes, I have kind of quite a varied background. So um, so before um, I decided to pretend university, I used to run a digital design consultancy. And I was very much basically into been into web design. I've always been interested in, in the online world in general. But before, it's more on the design side of things. And I used to run a company where a lot of my clients were coming from the arts and design world. So I was actually also very interested in urban design and architecture. So that's kind of another part of why I like doing this research, because it does kind of connect something. Conversations I used to have with my clients. 
but I can now start exploring quant, you know, quantifying. So like through these conversations with your clients, you decided that you wanted to pursue something in big data or like a data science or was, did this come about later? It came about a lot later. Okay. Yeah. So basically I decided that um, I wanted to do something a little bit more different, a little bit different, a little bit more intellectually challenging. So the web, so I've been like on, you know, doing stuff with the web for a long time, ever since websites were just one page and, and centering text was like really exciting. And so it's been absolutely fascinating to watch the web grow. And I loved, you know, working with the web all this time. But then at some point it became quite formulaic. I mean, we don't need fancy design websites anymore. You just want very informational websites. And um, so the intellectual challenge um, with design, just it just wasn't stimulating me anymore. So I was looking for something else. So that's when I decided to go back to university and I was really excited to find out about the world of data and, on, and online, you know, that kind of explosion. And that was like, oh, yes, you know, I can tie in my old passion and try to do something new. So when you decided that you wanted something more intellectually stimulating, why did you decide to do a PhD in big data and how that links the environment? What, what made you decide to do a PhD? Um, it kind of happened by accident. So actually, I was doing a master's in behavioral economic science. Mm. And I was I really, really loved that. And I just uh, was trying to figure out what I want to do next. I just saw an ad and, uh, for a PhD, um, so basically using online data to understand human behavior. And it just felt like I could combine, you know, what I used to do online with this new, you know, just learned behavioral economics. Just felt like the perfect combination. So that's why I was absolutely fascinated and that's how it kind of happened. Yeah. And did, were there any prerequisites there that you had to be able to code or did you have coding experience before that you thought you could apply just to this PhD and you would like, you know, pick up things as you went along? Um, no, I had to convince my supervisor that I could code and I hadn't coded for a very long time. So actually it was quite hard because yeah. I was like, uh, um, so when I was uh, doing my digital, I did code like maybe you know, a long time ago, mm. but you know, when my company was mainly doing the design side of things or mm. the project management side of things, you know, I hadn't touched code in a very long time. And then my supervisor was like, well, if you want to do this PhD, you know, you, you need to know how to code. Like, mm. So I had already learned how to do some R coding in my behavioral economics and my um, masters, but you know, you also need to kind of like learn how to use Python or you know, different types of code to kind of connect APIs to gather data. And that was something I didn't know how to do. But I had to like really push myself yeah. and learn like, okay, a few months into convince him. But then it was a really good stepping stone. I imagine like with that experience, you managed to convince your supervisor and like you've been really successful yeah. since then. So that worked out really well. Yeah. You published a paper recently in Nature Scientific Reports that showed aesthetics of environment and how that influences health and well-being across the rural and urban areas in the UK. And like you mentioned, you combined a lot of techniques, including citizen science, machine learning, and different socioeconomic data. Um, you briefly touched on it earlier, but could you just describe um, the study and what did you actually find from this study? Okay, so this is a study where we basically combined the data from Scenic or Not with the data from the census where you know people are asked how they feel about their health and the answer, you know, I feel healthy or not so healthy and what we had to do then was to correct it um so you basically take a standard morbidity ratio which which accounts for uh, a person's gender as well as age because you know you definitely feel healthier when you're younger not so healthy when you're older for some reason females feel healthier than men so it's just basically trying to normalize that um, and then we combined the two and we saw a connection 
But of course, that's not enough because you can argue that, well, maybe richer people um, feel healthier and they tend to live in more scenic areas. So you have to kind of be careful about that. So what we did is we also um, took into account other factors. So we took um, data from the deprivation indices so, so we can kind of take into account things like um, income deprivation, um, employment deprivation. Uh, we, can also, we also took into account air pollution. And so after taking all that into account, uh, we, could, we still found that that relationship held, that people do report better health when they live in more scenic areas. And interestingly, that this doesn't just hold um, in general, it also held in urban areas as well. And that's what I'm actually very fascinated about. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So like for urban areas compared to rural areas, like rural areas, you've got like wide green open spaces and countryside where with air, urban areas, you do have pockets of greenery around. How do you quantify that at like such a granular level where you can be like, yeah, this urban area is a bit more green than this other urban area that's next door, if that makes sense. Whereas like a rural area is quite wide space and you can kind of easily like classify that as like being a green area. Yeah, so all the data I'm still it's coming so if I'm scenic or not, and so I have an image for every square kilometer of mm -hmm. Great Britain. So I have um, kind of a, an image that represents a square kilometer of an urban area. So that's mainly what I've been using, and that gave me a good indication of where the beautiful places were. And it was and it was interesting because there was another study I did later on where we're trying to analyze what are beautiful places, and it turns out that it's not just natural areas that people find beautiful. People also find, you know, places with characterful buildings to be beautiful, beautiful bridges as being beautiful. So that the, the context of beauty is actually something beyond just um, that natural is beautiful. And I thought that was quite interesting, especially in the urban context. Yeah, it's great. So when pe the people annotated the website and the images, did you get like all the images being annotated or um, uh, what was the coverage like? Yeah. For that? No, so uh, the images were not annotated. Yeah. And so I actually had to use deep learning algorithms <sighs> to extract what the content was for each image. So first what I did was I basically took my 200,000 images and ran it through the MIT Places uh, deep learning neural, uh, convolutional neural network uh, deep learning algorithm. And it basically allows you to extract uh, two different things. So one is about 102 scene attributes, so things like is it natural or is it man-made? Mm -hmm. um, and the other one it can also do is displace categories as well. So for example, you know, is it a promenade? Is it an ocean? Is it a mountain scene? Um, whether, you know, if, it's, if there's actually a type of building in there, like a cottage, a tower, um, things like that. So I use the... Um, the, the kind of the output of that algorithm and then did kind of um, a machine learning kind of um, analysis to try to understand which features were then connected with more beautiful places. You found that people who lived in more kind of beautiful areas were more healthy. So what do you mean by more healthy exactly? Uh, that they were reporting better health. Just reporting better health and in, yeah. in general. So is this just like a kind of rank from like one to 10? Like, yes, I'm really healthy to like not so, or is this just like, you know, like a medical yeah. report of someone's... No, it's, it's, it's self-reported health. What would you say to policymakers right now with this research? Um, that, that there is something about beauty that also seems to matter. And I think what we also found out a lot about was that green space alone wasn't enough to understand environment's impacts. Um, so, there, so I think there definitely needs to be more research done to try to understand about qualities of green space and how that might actually connect with people's well-being as well because mm. the, the indications we're getting at the moment is that just because an area is green doesn't mean that it's necessarily going to be you know connected with people's well-being 
mm. that there is something like if the if the green space is a bit more beautiful, perhaps people are just like engaging with it more, just just getting something out of it more. And I would actually like policymakers to um to explore that a bit more. So for example, we we just noticed again using the um, deep learning algorithms, it was a largely flat area of grass. People were rating that down as not being that beautiful. Mm. So you can imagine a park with trees and valley contours is going to be a place that you're going to want to spend time in. Uh, a park that's largely flat looks quite desolate and that's probably a park you don't want to spend that much time in mm. so there is that kind of immediate difference what kind of challenges did you have with like obviously private access land because a lot of this country is basically farmland which people can't access yeah. publicly so someone might be able to see it out the window but then might not necessarily be able to access it so what did this affect yeah. the images the collection of images that you had were there any images of those kind of areas um i think it might have because what i noticed is that east of england doesn't come out as being that beautiful and i think mm -hmm. it's because it's largely flat farmland Looking at what you're currently doing now, I noticed that you're working for Channel 4 as a senior data scientist, which is really interesting. Yeah. So what is your role there? And is this is this a, a chance of you moving out of academia or are you going to keep academia as well, parallel to working for Channel 4? Um, luckily, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm still kind of a busy researcher at Alan Turing Institute because I, I kind of like having my feet in two places, I suppose. Um, I guess I'm interested in a commercial uh, angle of data science because it's a completely different perspective. You get access to completely different kind of data. I mean, the data at Channel 4 is fascinating because um, at the moment, um, the project I'm working on is where you're looking at the content of shows and then trying to understand based on that content what ads you might place. So again, a lot of image analysis again. Mm. Um, but yes, I'm not necessarily leaving academia. I still have one foot in because I, I still love the research world as well. So you mentioned that you're using images um, for like Channel 4. So the idea there in this project is to basically um, analyze the content of a, a TV show before you've got your ad break. So you, so it's a, again, a lot of a image analysis because you want to, so for example, say there's a scene where somebody's um, having a glass of wine then if you show an ad that somebody's actually uh, of a, a wine um, brand, they're more likely to remember that ad oh. because it's contextually relevant to something they've already seen. What's it like in research when it's a little bit more collaborative and you're asking for pe people for help and you're also sharing your research compared to like something a little bit more corporate where you're under like, you know, confidentiality? What's it like there? Um, I mean, I like it when things are a lot more open because you can only do really good work through collaboration and it is difficult when you can't like ask for help so I mean of course it's great like you know if you have a team that you can kind of collaborate with that's fantastic but sometimes if you're trying to do things that are quite technically quite challenging you do need to kind of like reach out and talk to people to try to figure things out especially like when I was working on my deep learning paper um, if I wasn't at the Turing Institute I couldn't have asked anybody else for help because I needed to talk with different researchers that are also working in similar problems to try to figure out how do you solve this very difficult thing. Mm. Um, so, yes, I mean, in the commercial world, of course, it's difficult to always be open. But um, I think people are trying to find ways of actually trying to share their research. So more companies are presenting mm. their research in conferences, for example. And I, I quite like that trend. Because mm. I think it's, in the end, I think it does benefit 
um, you, you do better work, which then benefits the company. So actually, in general, like what, what kind of differences do you find between academia and industry? Is there one you prefer over the other or there's, are there certain aspects that you like over another? Um, they're just different. It's kind of like apples and oranges. And mm. I think that's why I like having my um, uh, foot in both places, feet in both places at the moment. Um, I guess in the industry, you do get you get easier access to interesting data because you're already within the company. So you don't have to, you know, as a researcher, when you're looking for data, it's so difficult and you have to sign, you know, different, you know, confidentiality agreements. It's not that. So you already have access to that data and that's quite rich. Um, oh, yeah. And obviously you don't, you're not having to always search for funding to actually do a project as well. So that's kind of, so that in itself. Is interesting. Um, I guess what's interesting about academia though is that though you, you don't you're not in um, somebody else's agenda. So the company has an agenda, so therefore you have to do the research based on what they want. And when you're in academia, you have a lot more freedom to try to figure out what you might want to explore. And you can you know it doesn't ma- matter if it's commercially viable because you just you can continue to explore um, as long as you have the funding. But and then that's a little bit more interesting as well. So there's there I don't know there's different different aspects. Wonderful. So, um, I mean, you've had like this incredible experience of like a, a digital media designer. You've like, you, you, you've been art designer, consultant for companies. You've been like direct and co-founder for several digital design companies. You know, you like have, ba- you have some background in like website design and coding as well, which enabled you to go into your PhD and like go into data science. So you've basically covered like the arts, humanities and like, <laughs> you know, yeah. digital world quite perfectly. What advice would you give to somebody who wants to go in tech, who's never been in tech before, or who feels like they're having to go, like jump an incredible leap of faith to go into it? And this is especially to women and minorities who obviously don't make up the workforce in tech at the moment. Yeah, well, I mean, like I said, I, I had to talk, teach myself how to code really fast. And these days it's fantastic because there's so many resources. So you can actually upskill very fast and I think it might feel daunting at first because it, it you know if you especially haven't coded before or if you're very new to coding but it doesn't take that long to actually I think get familiar with it you just kind of have to get stuck in and start learning um, and also to not be afraid to ask for help and I think the most important thing is to kind of create a network around you of people you can actually constantly ask help because you know not only will you ask them for help but they will also ask you for help and it's in a way, it's a way that you can actually kind of improve your skill set. Um, uh, the other advice I have to say is just just to be bold um, and to be courageous. And because it's it is difficult and it is daunting. It is difficult when you're female and and you're a minority, which I'm, I'm both. <laughs> and um, again, uh, sometimes feel quite intimidated. I know sometimes I might feel intimidated going into a job interview or intimidated when I'm like giving a talk. But I just kind of just tried to get that out of my head and then um, just show people how passionate I am about what I do. And that seems to like translate and then people are actually really interested in listening to what I have to say. You were listening to the Researchers Code podcast. If you enjoy this episode, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever podcasting platform you use.